Netflix presents Inside Joke Space Force, and I'm your host, Jimmy O. Yang. Make up your own Kokomo dance and don't forget your $1,000 button covers. Now let's go inside Space Force. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking about the series premiere of Netflix's Space Force, The Launch, written and created by Steve Carell and Greg Daniels, and directed by Paul King. Four-star General Mark Nair, leader of the newly created Space Force, is pressured to launch a satellite despite dire warnings from his scientists. There's too much moisture in the air. We prefer a less ionized environment. You are a civilian advisor. There are always going to be risks. Conditions are never perfect. They're supposed to be perfect tomorrow. And our guest today... Creator, executive producer of the show, and writer of the episode, Greg Daniels. And also, the creator, EP, writer, and the star of the show, Mr. Steve Carell. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Nice to see you, yes. Um, I guess the big question here, right? Like, what is, how did you guys come up with this concept? What was it about, like, Space Force that got you guys excited? You're like, man, this is going to be our next thing. It Nothing. It has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Netflix had an internal conversation after they announced the real Space Force. And they got to thinking, that might be a fun idea. And so I got a call. And they said, would you be interested in this idea of these two words? And I thought, sure. And then I called Greg and he said, sure. And then we were off and running. It was based on literally nothing. Wow. And, and it was just an announcement of Space Force. There wasn't real recruits yet, no real even uniforms or logos, right? No, they had just announced it. The, they, there was a video of the announcement and off camera and maybe on camera, there was a reference to the general who was supposed to do it. And the I think that at least for me, thinking about, oh boy, that guy that just fell on this guy's lap, you know, that's going to be a hard job. He's got to, you know, deal with all the politicians and the scientists. And he probably wasn't thinking when he got up that day that he was going to do that. Yeah. You know, that was part that was part of what we liked about it, at least for me. Well, it was it was such a blank slate, too. It's, a you know, a, a, a part of the armed forces that that didn't exist up until that minute. And I thought, boy, you know start something from the ground up without without even knowing what the real one's going to be i thought was going was really intriguing yeah and the show walks um the line between real life characters real life events and our own imagination you know of course we got like potosi auyc that's not quite there and and mark naird i guess is uh is a is a created character right or, or is he based on anyone uh no he's created he's a, a fictional character kind of a I, you know, I had certain people in the back of my mind uh, as I was thinking of the guy. He's, he's a very forthright, uh, very moral. Um, he's uh, extremely dependable and he's a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought of my dad, honestly, who's, mm. who's not exactly, um, you know, he, he doesn't have the same demeanor that Nerd has. He's uh, my dad is much quieter and introspective, and Nerd is uh, a bit, you know, a bit more abrasive and uh, and you know, he, he puts himself out there a little bit more than my father ever did. But there, they share those those kind of qualities by the book, um, and 
you know, somebody who you ultimately can rely upon. So I think he was always sort of in the back of my head. Yeah, and Steve, was there something about playing a general that that really got you interested? Because you're at the point of your career where you can do whatever you want, and 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 I think everyone's super excited for you to return to a thirty hour, I mean thirty minute format. So was it the general? Was it the space force? Like, what was it that was like? "Mm, I would. He seemed like a different type of character, you know, certainly a very high status character, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I don't tend to play very often. Um, Someone that other (laughs) someone that other people respect. <laughs> which, which, which rarely happens. Which rarely happens in life or uh, on screen. Uh, so, so I, I, maybe that's it. Maybe I was just seeking some sort of respect in in my life, and I gravitated <laughs> towards this part. Has it worked? No, not at all. No, <laughs> I'm summarily dismissed by everyone. <laughs> um. When was John Malkovich involved? <laughs> Greg, can you pinpoint the the Malkovich of it all? I I know that when we started writing, he was in the back of our heads. Well, his agent, as, as yeah, could. his agent called us up um, after the announcement. Um, yeah, almost immediately. Yeah, and he said, um, you know, he said John would be interested, and that that sometimes happens. I would get like, you know, little flurry of of people who mm-hmm. who liked the concept. And uh, but John was the most um, exciting one of them. And so we always were. And and Steve was, you know, said from the beginning that he he, the casting for him, he wanted to have some actors of dramatic heft Mm -hmm. in the casting, you know, something that felt more movie ish. And um, so it just seemed amazing to get an opportunity to have Malkovich do comedy and be opposite Steve and kind of counterbalance so much of the show. And terrifying, frankly. Yeah, I think me and you, Steve, we met Malkovich on the same day, our, our, his first day of shoot, right? Like, you haven't met him before. Uh, no. You know, he, he's, he walks into the room. He's John Malkovich. There is no mistaking that he is John Malkovich. Um, yeah, I was very intimidated by him. But he's that, such a lovely person. Oh, absolutely. And I I, I know you've had the same experience working with him, and I'd never met him up until that point. Huge fan of his long and storied career. My gosh, his body of work is incredible. Um, But then to meet him, he's just the nicest, most affable, interesting person to talk to. Mm -hmm. And he... He was available to everyone. He, you know, uh, and he, he's very talkative. He's very friendly. Uh, and he's great. And he's incredibly funny, too. So it was kind of a, a win all the way around. As a viewer, like something that I love about John Malkovich is that there's you don't really know what direction he's going to go, even in the middle of a sentence. You know, it seems like mm. it can it can go very powerfully in any direction. And the and the the um, the timing is so unusual. Like when you're acting in a scene with him, is that is that a different experience? Oh, for sure, because his rhythm is very, very different. He he goes. You're right. He goes at his own pace and he's finding all sorts of rhythms within within his dialogue and and he's also very musical and I think mm-hmm. I had, I'd never really thought of it before but I think those go hand in hand because I think he sees a script he hears a script as music I don't want to put words in his mouth but 
Um, yeah, that I, it makes sense to me because he can find different rhythms that you would never imagine uh, and, and ways of placing words together. Um, so the first time we worked together, that first scene, you know, it just, like anything else, it, it takes some time to, to get used to someone else's rhythm right. and, and, uh, and kind of hear the music of their dialogue. Yeah, and I think that first scene was at the launch site, right? In the desert out there? Was that the right? The first scene we shot together was one in, in uh, General Naird's office. Oh, so that's a pretty intimate one-on-one scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's the first scene that they have together in the pilot episode. It's good to hear that you were intimidated by John Malkovich, because I was intimidated by uh, John Malkovich and Greg Daniels and Steve Carell. But same thing, what you guys are saying about John Malkovich, I think day two, it felt like we're just working together, and it was super fun and chill. Yeah, I think Greg has a real talent for doing that. He... he tends to cast people who get along with each other mm. and kind of stays away from jerks. I mean, we, on The Office, there there were no jerky people. Everyone was really nice and fun and friendly and hardworking. And the same goes for this. There wasn't a bad apple. No, yeah, not at all. I was going to say, the crew always would say it starts at the top of the call sheet. And they, they were always... The office crew, especially, and we have a lot of them who wanted to come back and work on this show. And, you know, I remember they would would always have stories about you, Steve, about like you carrying the chairs for the makeup ladies and stuff like that. And that that goes a long way in getting people uh, to have the right spirit. Yeah. Oh, I I am an absolute gem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... It's interesting you guys are talking about casting because that it's such like a great cast of actors uh, from Steve and John, the real you know um, leaders of this group. And then how was it discovering these people? Right, because Greg, you've worked with Ben. Um, how was it discovering somebody like Diana Silvers, Tawny, Don Lake, and uh, even me, I guess? Well, you, I mean, I had a, such a great um, review of you from Mike Judge. So I was very... My man. Yeah, he was like, snap this guy up. So I was, uh, I had a lot of confidence oh, there. But, um, but you know, we did a lot of uh, improvisation with Steve in the room with uh, Tawny and Diana. So they, they kind of made the first cut, um, you know, with me and Allison Jones and Ben Harris in the, in the room. And, uh, and then we brought everybody back for chemistry reads with Steve. And I mean, you remember those, those were, those were like really fun. And we, we took some premises that we didn't use in the show and Tawny and Diana both just came alive and they really vibed with Steve, I thought. And, and how the show is set up, it, it always, uh, Kind of reminds me. I know we talk a little bit about Sopranos in the in the room and stuff. How how this general he he has so so much to deal with on the outside, um, but there's the family, you know, uh, with Maggie, with Aaron, uh, with the dad. Was that early on in the show that you guys decided he 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 needs that grounding? Yeah, I you know, like anything else. And Greg was talking about the tone of the show. So much of it. Um, had to do with making them grounded characters. And you, I think, get away with a lot more comedically if an audience can relate in some way to these characters. And if there are moments of vulnerability and moments of tenderness and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more more subtle dramatic moments without being cloying or overly sentimental, but just 
reflecting, you know, a, a, a more human side. Yeah. If if those kind of things are in place, like uh, a family dynamic, like his relationship with his daughter, his relationship with his wife, you c- I think can get away with a lot more comedically, and you can dial it up uh, in terms of the silliness sometimes. Mm-hmm. But still, be be within the the realm of accessibility for an audience. And we've always yeah. talked about uh, that the sense of humor is laugh with rather than laugh at, and mm. you know that there's um, there's something about how we did it on the office, and I think part of it was, if I remember right, Steve was that when you were doing the Daily Show, that you often felt enormous sympathy for these guys that you were kind of luring into. Was that you, or, or am I confusing yeah. that? <laughs> no, that was, and that was early on on the Daily Show, and within um, within a few months, it changed. And I remember talking to Stephen Colbert about how to make it work. And one of the ways we decided, because it did feel insidious and 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 just kind of dirty to be going in and making fun of people who didn't mm-hmm. deserve it, um, so. We both assumed characters within the show that would take the brunt of the, uh-huh, the silliness, uh-huh. and the audience would be laughing at the absurdity of these mock journalists as opposed to laughing at these uh, civilians. Yeah, these and and most of the time they were just very quirky people. They weren't. They had no axe to grind. They they weren't hurting anyone, and there was no reason to make fun of them. But to have fun with them was a different thing. Yeah, so I think we always were looking to make the characters very three-dimensional and show them, you know, having a life so that they weren't reduced to types. Uh, and so when you when you sort of apply that to, to this new show, you know, mm-hmm. it makes sense to, to let the general have a three-dimensional life so that you're on his side and you understand the stresses on him and, uh, you know, you're able to identify with him. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of uh, you guys' DNA uh, with the office and everything you guys have done. Everything is so funny, but it has so much heart. It's just not just comedy for comedy's sake. And 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 I remember, I think Steve, you, you said I read this quote of yours, uh, and you know we always talk about awareness in the room, um, uh, how self-aware or not self-aware they are, and people should never. I think this is your quote saying, I you know you tell me if this is right. Uh, People, characters in a comedy should never know that they're in the comedy. You know who's a perfect example of that is Fred Willard. Mm. He's a guy, you know, that I admired so deeply because that was his stock and trade. He he would play a character without ever indicating that anything he was doing was funny or that he was in a comedy. And he was so deep into it that at times you started to think – Maybe, maybe he is that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, early on when he was on Fernwood Tonight, I thought, did they just find a guy <laughs> who was so clueless? Yeah. Because it was, it was seamless. His, his performance was so effortless and so seamless. And he clearly didn't think he was saying anything funny or absurd. But that is what made him such a genius at it is that he never let on. And I would equate him with somebody like Peter Sellers, who mm. could play a, a character like Clouseau and or any of those characters he played in Dr. Strangelove, which were some very broad characters. But at the same time, 
those characters didn't know that they were doing anything funny. They weren't playing the comedy of it. They were playing the humanity of it. And that's, to me, what made it funny. So, mm. you know, those... I and I and I don't equate myself with Fred Willard or <clears throat> Peter Sellers. That's definitely something to aspire to. Well, I I do. I will. I'll equate you with that. And I, I think that one of the things that makes your performances so amazing is that you lean. You kind of lean in, and you're like, he is completely masking the awareness of what he's doing. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's so many actors. They have a little twinkle or they're they're they want to be liked or whatever and they sort of right. they try and have it both ways. Like I'm playing this guy, but I'm also the guy that you remember and you know, and to it's so much better when somebody just loses themselves utterly in something and you can't you just are like on the edge of your seat about like, does he even know what's happening? Yeah. Does he know why he's being so funny? You know? I think for me, the the trick is that I know that I'm not going to be liked. So I don't try. <laughs> it's an early acceptance. <laughs> yeah. I'm resigned. I'm resigned to that fact. <laughs> um, you, you guys put together a great team, not just with the cast, but uh, a lot of crews and the writers. Uh, Brent Forrester, Paul Lieberstein, uh, kind of bringing the Avengers uh, from the office who are some of like the first people you called building that team? Well, that was the first. I mean, we went to the. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I went straight to the various writers from the office, um, but and then we went to for for directors. Um, you know, one of the things that was so fun about it was with this show was Netflix was on board with the notion of going big and sort of cinematic, and mm-hmm. you know, so it it opened the door to a lot of great directors. I mean. Uh, D. Reese, I don't know if she's going to do the podcast. She, uh, she is, yep. Yeah, Paul King, you know, mm-hmm. set the tone with everything in the beginning. And uh, a lot of international people, Tom Marshall, also from England, and Dana Reed at Dana the end Reed, from yeah. Australia. And then, of course, our homegrown office guys, uh, Jeff Blitz and and Dave, Dave Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. yeah. What, what was the decision uh, uh, to have Paul do the pilot? Uh, Mr. Mr. Paul King, of course, directed Paddington 2, one of the greatest movies of all time. I'm not even saying that sarcastic. It's amazing. I I love it. I love that movie. Higher Rotten Tomato rating than The Godfather for Paddington. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that's fantastic. And he he knows how to create a place and a feeling that's unique. And he's a master of a big production. One of the things that I was uh, excited about with him was he had also done these British TV comedies, um, Come Fly With Me and The Mighty Boosh, which are like the kind of the opposite of Paddington in a way. They're very kind of uh, anarchic and, and you know, crazy. And uh, mm-hmm. and Come Fly With Me was a mockumentary. So I, I knew he was, he was good for comedy and um, good for improv, as well as, you know, the ability to world create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt like a very big world. And that, that's the other reason why some of these directors were ones we wanted to work with, is that their, their, their scope was big. You mm-hmm. know, th- there was a lot of production value for this show, and we wanted people with an eye to capture all of it. Because it's not easy to, to wrangle such a, a big production, but at the same time make it relatable and funny and, and all of those human things within you know, the beauty of the cinematography. Yeah, the directors really have a, have a lot on their plate um, to, 
to you know uh, make the grandness of the show to 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 have the comedies play out. And I've heard a couple of the directors being nervous directing you and John Malkovich. You know uh, that that's that's a it's quite the job. And then we got uh, an amazing um, kind of surprise edition of Lisa Kudrow. Uh, she kind of came in later than all of us. How, how did that all go down? Oh, I was going to say the, she came in later because we clumped all of her work towards the very, very end because we, we knew we wanted somebody special. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we didn't want whoever it was to have to work a full three months or however it was to shoot, you know. So we took all of her scenes out and put them in January in like a four day period, uh, before we knew who it was going to be. Uh, but yeah, she was, she was great. And I've known her so long. I've known her since, uh, like 1987 or something because she was in Conan O'Brien's, uh, groundlings class. And wow. uh, that's how I got to know her. Yeah. That, that was the year I was born. Uh, not, <laughs> not, to, <laughs> not to make this weird or anything. <laughs> well, it is. Steve, have you worked with it before? Uh yeah. I um I did a guest spot on on her show and we've kind of kept kept in touch. Um and we, I've we've just been sort of mutual fans for a while and uh so yeah, that was to to get to work with her and she she actually did a guest spot on a show that my wife and I wrote. Um Angie so Tribeca, she, right? Yeah, she yeah. did the pilot on that. And uh yeah, she's I, I'm a huge fan. She's uh she's excellent. She's so smart and she's so funny and just exactly what you'd think she'd be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I think is kind of cool is like if you look at say nineteen ninety one or something like that, who who was doing improv in that year? Who had the chops and who who had the training in the very few improv theaters? Like, they're all gigantic now. Do you know what I mean? It's like Lisa mm. Kudrow was doing it with Conan in L.A. You were doing it with Stephen Colbert and Bob Odenkirk. And, wow. You yeah. know, who else was in your in your zone at Second City? Um, oh, Tina Fey, right? Tina Fey was a little bit behind. Like, she was a year or two behind. I, I never actually worked with her. But she was, I think, in touring company when I was uh, – on a stage there. I was in a uh, cast with uh, Amy Sedaris. Mm, wow. Yeah, there were a lot of people uh, at that time. That, that's always so cool. Like you guys all came up together and now all of you guys are humongous and, and, and very successful. Same thing with even Malkovich with like Steppenwolf, you know, we got Gary Sinise and everyone else. There were a lot of people from that that time at Second City and people that I used to watch, Dan Castellaneta, Bonnie oh, yeah. Hunt, people... I would watch Richard Kind. Wow, he was in Second City. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there there are some really incredible talents there. And on our show, you're from Second City. Tawny's from Second City. Don Lake's from Second City, Toronto. Not an advertisement for Second City, but maybe there's some magic in there for sure. Or just nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here we're gonna play a little clip. Uh, from the show, and we can commentate on it and stuff, and uh, and then I got some great questions for you guys after that. Ah, so we have heard from Mr. Chan, Doctor, Doctor Chan. I'd like to hear another opinion. Perhaps somebody willing to dissent from the party line. Who would like to give me a good reason why we should launch today? Anyone? So I can weigh the pros and cons. Don't you have any Mavericks on your team, Mallory? 
I say launch. Great, and you are doctor? Just call me Eddie. Oh, Ain't shit. a doctor. I go to a bunch of them now. Wonderful. So those in favor of postponement are me and Dr. Chan, Dr. Swedberg, Dr. Boer, Dr. Reverdash, Dr. Yamoto, Dr. Lowenstein, Dr. Washington, and Dr. Zisk. In favor of launch are you and Eddie. Any last name, Eddie? None that I care to mention. Okay. Chan, what's behind your back? It's an umbrella, sir. Did you think it was a sword cane? Samurai sword? Would you like to examine it, sir? No, we are done here. That's a great scene. And with the Eddie character, Chris Gethard, he's so extremely funny. And, and how Malkovich, like, oh, okay, very dismissive. Yeah, that okay, that was his first. I, I think that may have been, I can't recall. It may, it may have been the same day or might have been before or whatever. But I remember feeling anxious and because we, we hadn't worked with him before. And he came in and he did that. And I was like, Okay, I am no no longer anxious. He is fucking funny. I was a wreck that day. I was a mess, first of all. Very nervous emotionally. I was trying to not show it. Uh, and then we're out in this field. The wind was blowing. My hair was all over the place. And then the umbrella kept snapping and breaking when I, uh, like, it just shot, like, right at Steve's direction. Um, <laughs> and we had no idea. Like, all that rocket stuff, it was a green screen. So I, I didn't even know how grand it was going to look, but I think it all turned out amazingly. Yeah. Other than my performance, that, that could be improved, but, you know, that's a conversation for another day. You rocked it. It's funny, too, you know, when you say, oh, I was nervous or, you know, so I, I, you would never know that you were nervous. You, you contained that extremely well. I just, I look around and I think, but am I the only one who's nervous or am I the only one who's like ha- has butterflies about this? And yeah, cause everyone seems so, you know, so calm and so on their game and, yeah. uh, you know, nobody seems to be batting an eye and, uh, and you think, boy, like, why is, why am I the one struggling? <laughs> and then you hear that. It's, it's kind of nice to hear that other people are, are kind of freaked out about the whole thing. I think it's the nicest coming from you. I think most people would be nervous acting with you. And I think at the end of the day, the only one that's probably not nervous on the set is John Malkovich. Yeah, I, he's done, you know, 4,000 parts. So I think this is, you know... It, it, it's pretty, but you know what? He throws himself into it as he would any other thing. Yeah. Have you talked about how he codes all of his scripts? I, I, I didn't get into the details, but he is oh my studying in between every scene. And I'm like, oh my God, I need to step up my game. Every scene. He has a binder with his script and notes and each scene is color coded with a little tag and mm-hmm. he can reference scenes exactly when he needs to. And it's, he's, it's so efficient and uh, it's just so perfectly laid out. And I, you know, I have a set of, of sides from three days ago and it's the wrong page. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like half of it's torn off so somebody could stick some gum in it. You know, it's just, it's it's embarrassing how much, <laughs> how much more professional he is. Um, and it shows in his work. It's, there's like yeah. an, there's an elegance to him. Yeah, when he's on the camera, it seems so effortless. But we see that he's actually doing a lot of work, which is yeah. amazing at his level. 
Yeah. I noticed that with some of the directors, too. For instance, Dana Reed, who did the last two episodes, she preps hard and she's thought through mm. everything. And she's got really, you know, in-depth questions days before you get to the to the set. And, and it shows. Um, I would like to get into some details of the episode itself and, and certain specifics of it. Uh, how did you guys decide and land on Wild Horse, Colorado, which is very much a real city? I wouldn't call it a city. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think it's got a population of 250. <clears throat> but um, I was just looking at a map and, uh, you know, thinking that um, the exteriors should be kind of classic American Southwest Monument mm-hmm. Valley, John Ford kind of deserty stuff. And that um, it would be helpful for the base to be surrounded by something that would feel like the moon for the lunar habitat kind mm-hmm. of uh, episode. And and uh, Colorado is classic NORAD and Air Force and, uh, you know, strategic command. And it's where they actually ended up putting Space Force uh, after we already picked it. And uh, just sort of looking on Google Maps around that area where there was nothing, like trying to find a, a completely blank part of, of Colorado and, you know, having a few names to pick from. And then you hit Wild Horse and it's such a, I don't know, it's a cool name to me. Yeah, and I feel like Space Force, the real Space Force, is stealing our ideas, putting their base a wild horse with the uniforms and everything. Uh, you know, so we we should get credit for that. Um, and 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 the show starts with uh, the ceremony with Mark getting his four four star general uniform, and of course uh, announcing that he's going to be the head of Space Force now. Um, how much research did you guys do in those ceremonies and those joint chief rooms? And how much leeway did you guys give uh, yourself uh, as comedy? Well, we had a writer's assistant who's retired uh, Navy officer. And um, yeah, and so he would help hold us accountable all the time uh, about the, the details of the, you know, the star ceremony and who's putting the star on you. And, you know, um, and then w- one thing we did for effect or for poetic license was we remove the layer of the secretary of each service. So mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. there's the general in charge of the, the service, but then there's also like a secretary of the Navy between the head of the Navy, chief of Naval operations or whatever, and the secretary of defense. There is this other layer that we removed because it would be too crowded in the room. But apart from that, we tried to be pretty real. Yeah. And that Joint Chiefs Room itself is a murderous row of uh, comedic actors. Yeah, there are some really funny, funny folks in there. Have you worked with those guys before? Jane Lynch, Walburton, and those guys. Um, Jane Lynch is the only one of that gang that I've worked with before, and she's she's Second City as well. We uh, we're we were in touring company at the same time. Mm, see nepotism at its finest. I know Steve. you can't you know? can't help yourself. <laughs> But they're all great. They're all great. I mean, Larry Joe Campbell, who's the Coast Guard. Um, oh, know, D- he's Dietrich so funny. Bader. Dietrich's an old friend of mine. Dietrich Bader has been on so many shows and um, was in Office Space, Mike's movie. Uh, yeah. And Patrick Warburton from Seinfeld and The Tick and everything. It's just, yeah, they're all amazing. And then, of course, Noah Emmerich. You know, mm-hmm. Noah Emmerich is the head of the Air Force. This was another instance of finding somebody who is mostly known for drama but has a good sense of humor and is a fantastic actor and, you know, making it somebody that Steve's got to bump up against who's got some real heft to him. So we were really lucky to get him too. 
Yeah, the whip around image, and then you see this six four like monster tall Air Force general. It's it's really cool uh, to see you guys go toe to toe with each other. Uh, and then there's, there's of course the casting of Potosi, AYC, and Shugler. That's got to be fun, right? Like, and and I think Ginger and everyone did such a great job of not just channeling them, but creating. The, uh, our own imagination of these characters. Channeling who? I don't know. I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Just uh-huh. fictional characters that I, are I, I agree being I agree. portrayed in a parallel universe. <laughs> yeah. No, they were great. And there's um, episode three. There is a a big congressional hearing scene mm-hmm. that you know with hundreds of extras in a in a uh, very formal setting. Um, and it struck me as we were doing it, you know, we had all those great actors and, um, all these extras and the production design was gorgeous. And you start to feel like what, this is a movie We're we're making, we're making a, a film and, uh, and, and it felt like such a luxury to be able to not have to kind of cut corners and well it's supposed to be a congressional hearing but we'll maybe we'll cut to after the hearing and we'll we'll hear what had happened or we'll we'll you know sort of fudge it somehow or do it in a smaller room and pretend that there are more people but the fact that um they really put the production values in place i mm-hmm. think gives the show so much scope and especially like sitting there thinking, oh boy, we got to make this good. You know, a lot of really wonderful people involved with designing and building this and and shooting it. You know, our cinematographer, our, our DP, I think is is so excellent. There, you know, Simon Chapman. Yeah, he's fantastic. Australian. Yeah, film DP. So so many truly excellent people involved. You know cream of the crop and yeah. and so then you start to feel the pressure like wow I got to I got to step it up here this this better, yeah better better try you know because it's really really everyone is really working at the top of their game which was the episode Steve where you decided to try where did you start trying <laughs> um well it had to be a big group scene cuz then I thought wow look at all these lights and all these cameras and stuff. Because I, th- the first few weeks, I thought these are very intricate rehearsals. And then I realized we're shooting. I had better start trying because all of this is being committed to film. And so that, so you can see, I think it's uh, somewhere along the line. You ju- you see my eyes click in to gear. Yeah, and yeah. you'll know you'll know the part when it happens. Yeah, he stops speaking in a Spanish accent. It's really <laughs> interesting. Uh, you guys can clearly tell. And and our production designer uh, Susie Mancini, right? Uh, she is awesome. How, how'd you guys land on her? Um, well, you know, she had been doing. Uh, th- this is funny, actually. My former assistant Jordan Weiss, while she was an assistant with with me, wrote uh, Dollface. And so mm. she she left my employee and became a showrunner of of, of of her own show, Dollface. And uh, and she um, told me I was I just sort of set the word out to who's got a cool production designer. I'm doing this great show, and uh, she was super enthusiastic about Susie. And I went to see their sets since before the show had come out, 
Mm. And Susie was so creative and the, the sets were gorgeous. And, you know, we, we had a long talk about, uh, you know, about this show and, and various production designers we admired and stuff. And she threw herself into it and just did a fabulous job and came up with all sorts of symbols and iconography and went into the graphic design deep. And I feel like she's designed like I, I would be happy if Space Force, the real one, took her designs. She, she's got the greatest logo, the best, you know. The best graphic design. Yeah, and, and all that stuff is practical. Like the launch room screen. It's like a 12 by 12, 400 whatever square feet feet um, uh, screen. And, and when you step foot in that set, you feel it. It helps you get into character, which is really cool. Well, you know, that, that room, the launch room, was based on the launch room at SpaceX. And Steve ah. and, and I took a tour of SpaceX and, uh, you know, we're showing all their secrets on the inside. We made it big. We had a ton of extras and so, something to be said, even, even from top to bottom, from number one, the cost sheet, the extras started really taking pride in the show because they would come back day after day. And it became like a family, you know, like I learned all the names of the scientists around me and Malcolm was just chatting with them. Steve, I think you were chatting with some of them. It, it really became no a way. family. No, I, I didn't. I never did that. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's okay. not that's yeah, that, not that, my style. That's not you. You wouldn't talk to. No, you know. no. Come on. <laughs> that was your chat double. Steve has a chat that's... double that's on set <laughs> to do small talk yes. with people. And his name is Reginald. <laughs> what was the decision made uh, uh, to put Maggie in jail? Um, I thought it was interesting to have someone in jail, but not explain exactly why they are in jail. Um, that it was uh, a textural thing more than a plot point that had to be answered. It, you know, it it certainly um, influences where their relationship is going. Mm-hmm. But the the uh, the ins and outs of why she's there uh, remain a mystery, at least for this first season. Well, and I just, we- you know, I'll go ahead. Well, I just remember laughing with you so much about it when we came up with it in the early discussions of the show. And then when we got the writing staff assembled, that was the first thing they went after. And they were like, this is this is not good. You can't do this. And, <laughs> and, and um, I remember, you know, at first uh, I was defending it, um, you know, just because it was it had made us laugh so much. But the more I defended it, the more I was like, well, you know what? This is actually really good because um, what it does is, you know, I mean, the reason that we thought it was funny to begin with was just because he was, you know, in the first episode, he's under so much stress. And, um, you know, for him to also be dealing with the fact that his wife is in maximum security prison just seemed like a funny, you know, thing for him to deal with. But, But what it does is it makes him have to be the parent to his daughter and uh, and he's in a role where he didn't expect to do that and he doesn't really have a lot of practice because he'd always delegated it to her and now she's kind of not able to help and Aaron Diana Silver's character is starting to go off the rails and mm-hmm. I think that's to me that's like a really great very high stakes personal life thing that he has to take on in the middle of all the high stakes professional stuff that he's doing 
Mm-hmm. And, and I and I defend the decision to not explain why she's there because I I think it it's like when someone speaks in a whisper you tend to lean in and want to mm-hmm. hear what they have to say I I feel like it does the same for the show like people really are looking at her character and trying to decipher what she did just based on her behavior and I think there's. I don't think everything has to be answered uh, immediately. I think things can unfold and and characters can reveal themselves along the way. And that's that to me is like as as bizarre and um, absurd as it is, that does mirror life because you don't get to know uh, who a person is right off the bat. You don't know their backstory. And as it comes up, you know, things certainly fall into place. But I just, I love the fact that it drives people crazy. Yeah. That yeah. it's an unanswered question. And, you know, have some patience. You'll you'll find out, or maybe you won't. We'll see. But, yeah. you know, just just buckle up. If we went strictly by what the audience wants, they want to know why she's in prison, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the episode one, scene one, please tell us, um, because we want exposition, but I don't think life is always like that. And, uh, and you, you know, and sometimes you, you make the right moves, sometimes you don't, but I think it's a matter of going with your gut and mm-hmm. your instinct and how, uh, how it makes you feel, you know, and, and whether it makes you laugh. And, and sometimes you commit to, to a premise or a notion in spite of what everybody is telling you. <laughs> That's what this is, totally. I feel it too. I mean, I, I love I love the fact that it made us laugh so hard the first time around. It was completely, you know, drawn out of nowhere. And um and the the amount of money and attention we're spending on this show would generally sand off weird choices like that, you know, because mm-hmm, you'd mm-hmm. you'd say, Well, let's not risk it or something like that. And so I, I think committing to it is great. I think also Jeff Blitz, one of our directors, told me something once, which I think is really cool, where where he said, even your mistakes are good, because when you make a mistake, it's 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 the sum total of all your like, quote unquote, mistakes. That is your personal style. Like if, mm. you, if you never made any mistakes, you'd just be doing a, you know, textbook show like anybody else. So Yeah. Um, structurally with this show, since it's a Netflix show that's going to be serialized, all 10 episodes comes out at the same time. Uh, was there anything different about the structure of this show compared to uh, the classic episodic of The Simpsons, King of the Hills, uh, The Office? Well, those shows were always, you know, weak mm-hmm. written. And um, you did have a bit of feedback uh, from week to week. Not King of the Hills so much because animated, you had to do it way in advance. Mm-hmm. But um but like when we did The Office, for instance, we would be, you know, into the season and we'd be able to hear, oh, people are loving this or they're worried about Pam doing that. And we could course correct a bit. So this is a bit different than that it all drops at the same time. But one of the nice things about that is you can guarantee that everybody's going to see the show in the order that it was intended, you know, because nobody watches Netflix and they watch the sixth episode and then they they watch the fifth episode and you know what I mean? It's like, but that (laughs) used to happen, you know, on a normal TV schedule because you caught it on Thursday night and you might've, you know, been out doing something last week. So you missed it. And then, you know, so it's kind of cool 
to to guarantee that you're going to get the story in the order we're intending it. Yeah, and I, I guess because of that, we can talk about more longer arcs, character arcs, story arcs, and stuff. Um, one of the, I think, great things that people would want me to ask, uh, servicing the audience here, and also I'm very interested, and I think it's very cool, is the music in the show. Uh, the show opens up with the bang, bang, shoot em up, and then, of course, you got the Kokomo sequence, which even before the show has come out, has kind of caught on, you know, uh, uh, with the um, uh, trailer and everything. Um, so w- was there a, a big decision of like, okay, we're going to spend some money on music here and it's going to be this genre of music. Um, and are all these music kind of what Naird is hearing, what he would listen to? Um, sir, yeah, Kokomo for sure. Kokomo was something that I thought this, this is a song, you know, it's like Margaritaville. It's, it's a song that brings him to a happy place, mm-hmm. which is what he needs in that moment. Um, a soothing, uh, just a, a, a confection, really, yeah. to make him feel good, uh, enough to just get back into his day. Was there a choreographer for your dance, or did you uh, freestyle that, Steve? That is so sweet of you to even ask. <laughs> that is the kindest, or... Or you're just being facetious. No, I was impressed with the with the snap and the and the and the wrist moves. That was nice, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, all all free freestyle. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. You- While we're on the subject of music, we ought to also talk about the score because one yes. of the, the other stars of the show is Carter Burwell, the composer who. You know, as somebody who done has done so many uh, Coen Brothers movies and somebody I always wanted to work with. And when we got him on board, he, you know, would do it only if we we got a full orchestra, which, again, is very expensive. And I, you know, we had just kind of locked the cast down when I went back to Netflix and asked them to spring for a full orchestra and, you know, and a, a, a amazing, famous composer. And they uh, they were really cool about doing it. Because they, they, I think at a certain point you put this many stars in something, uh, it's like you got to go whole hog, right? You, it's like you might, you can't skip yeah. on the music. It can't be a guy in a kazoo, with a kazoo doing the, doing the scoring. Uh, Greg, you you have a, a very open policy. It seems like uh, to your actors pitching storylines and stuff. And this is the first time in my career that I was able to do that, being able to come in season one and pitch ideas and even season two uh, joining the room. Um, and, and you did that, of course, famously on The Office. Uh, and it seems very much just in the Greg DNA. What was the start of all that? And, 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 and uh, I guess just what's your process in that? I was on Saturday Night Live early in my career, and there's a nice mix of the writers and performers. There are some people are writer performers on that show. And, and uh, you know, I've been in situations where there's a wall set up between the actors and the writers. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a terrible thing. I think it's really great. Uh, and it leads to a less of a factory feel to, to the product. You know, it feels more handmade when there's not a very strong division between the roles and then mm-hmm. you're not thinking to yourself, I'm a writer, I got to do this. And, and I don't even know the actors and I got to protect my stuff from being ruined by the actors or the actors are like, I don't know about these lines. I don't trust them. I don't know the writers or anything. The more that there is trust and cooperation mm-hmm. between the two groups, the more you can go for interesting moments of behavior as the punchline or, you know, you can you can just 
struggle with the words if you don't quite get them in the beginning until you finally get them. And so that that kind of uh, cooperation is is pretty key, I think. Yeah, and 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 this is a question, I guess, for the both of you. For like young writers out there, what what's the most important thing? Because I think so many people they they're like, you got to read that Save the Cat book for the structure. You know, but they miss a lot of other stuff. So from veterans like you guys, what do you guys think? Uh, advice for young actors and young writers? Well, uh, for writing, there's a book. Um, what's it called? Something that it's got the word dough in it, like writing for dough. And it was written uh, by an old sitcom writer. And I, I, I really like it. His name is Bill Idelson. And um, I think that what it says is basically the writing has to do something to the audience. Like if mm-hmm. it either has to make them, make them laugh, make them tear up, make them scared. Writing that doesn't get a response out of somebody if, is just not really doing its job. And mm. that's like a super fundamental thing, I think. And Steve? From the acting side of it, I, I'd say, uh, not that I'm any great authority, but you are. You're you're the well, greatest authority. My my experience might be different than other people's, but I f- f- what what seemed to help me out was to just essentially accept any part that you're offered, <laughs> like to just <laughs> to just get get as much experience as you can get. Right. You know, in Chicago. I worked at Second City, but before that, you know, we would do improv shows in the back of bars or I'd take a community theater production just outside of Chicago or just just get just get the chance to do it and and practice it and get as many hours in as you can and watch other people do it and uh and not don't worry about showcasing yourself. I think a lot of people fall into the trap that well, I have to be seen. If I'm going to make it, I have to have people see me. But you shouldn't do that until you're ready to be seen. And and to get to that point, at, at least for me, um, and it's part of the reason I moved to Chicago, I just wanted to get experience. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't so concerned about, you know, making a big splash anywhere I could, because I, I just felt like I needed to learn a lot more. It's that stage time. Yeah, it's stage time. It's camera time. It's 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 trying to figure out how to get better. Um, and um, yeah, and don't don't put the cart before the horse. Just just try to get some experience. Um, yeah. So a lot of people will know you guys from the office, and we're seeing you know uh, the comments and the reactions from the trailer, and people are super excited because it's Greg Daniels and Steve Carell teaming up again. So for those Office fans out there, what can they expect and what do you guys want to say to them? It's a different show. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's got a, I think it has a different vibe to it. The characters are different. It's a completely different uh, setting and uh, tone, I think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the fact that Greg is leading the charge creatively should give people... Um, and you know, should give any fan of The Office uh, a level of excitement because I, you know, Greg Daniels is I I trust him implicitly, and I just and I'm leading you off a cliff. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Um, so I I as a you know as a, an actor. Um, 
I, I just, I trust him. And um, this is a new show. I, was, I mean, this is a new show. I think that um, it really is. We've got, we've got great, uh, a great working relationship. We have a lot of fun together. We had it on the office, but this is a completely new show. And I wouldn't ask people who love the office to watch this as a favor to us because they like the old show or anything. I feel like, you know, watch this cause it's a fun, it's a really fun new show. And I think Space Force will have its own fans, and I hope that the people who love The Office will love it. But I think that, um, you know, it's its its own thing, and it's got its, uh, an amazing cast, writers, premise, director. Everything's, everything's quite good on this show. Uh, so it has to stand on its own feet. Well, this this leads me to uh, another question: Is uh, what's the process of you guys working together? Because I'm sure you guys have a shorthand by now. So when Steve, you called Greg, you guys decided to do Space Force. Did you guys sit in a room together, break a story, break the pilot first, or did it start with the characters first and the setting? How how how, how did that process go? Well, we sat in Greg's living room with a writer's assistant who took notes, and we just spitballed for a while. Uh, for a couple of weeks, we just talked about what we might envision the show looking like, what it... I think the big the big discussions were tonal. Like, mm-hmm. what what is it going to feel like? We knew... And we and you don't want to start with a negative. You don't want to start with, well, we don't want it be, to be the office, but it, we did want it to feel fresh and, uh, and different. Yeah. And... And one of the things we talked about early on was that this world should have a much larger scope than the office visually. Mm-hmm. So I think we started with with tone and then we started getting into characters and relationships and who might populate this world. And themes. You know, we talked about like what is what does space mean to people? What is the you know, in, in America, what is like the Apollo landing on the moon? Like that's such a resonant and emotional thing for people. And we were like, you know, we're going to be writing about this. We got to do it justice. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time we were done with all these meetings, because we met a, a number of times, you know, we had a document that was almost 70 pages long and was the basis of the first several episodes. We had a lot of episode ideas, a lot of ideas we haven't used, um, you know, but uh, but once you start writing down the stuff that makes you laugh, you realize, oh, my subconscious is sort of directing things because we're laughing. Mm-hmm. The part that we're both laughing at is the part that we've, we've decided that is the, what the show turns into. Yeah. In between The Office and, the spa- and Space Force, w- was there ever a discussion of you guys teaming up together for something else maybe? Well, we, we had been meeting. Um, you know, we had been like having lunch and saying we ought to do something together. And it was, it was just really great good fortune that this fun Space Force idea kind of fell in our laps. I only ask this uh, uh, for my future of our friendship here. Uh, do you guys all stay in touch? Are you guys all close friends from the office? Uh, just so to see in five years, would Steve even, you know, answer my Zoom calls? We are still friends. Yeah, it's very unusual. That's awesome. We really, I yeah, I love those people. And, and without any sarcasm, every time I... I see them or run into them or we talk on the phone. It's gr- it's great. And it, it it really does feel like family. Yeah. I, that sounds so so cloying, but mm-hmm. that's that's very that's true. Um and you know what I th- it was a it was a re- it was a true ensemble too. Mm-hmm, everybody mm-hmm. everybody felt as, like an equal part of that. 
And it was a partnership between cast and crew and writers. Everybody was everybody was equal and um, and appreciated. It was it was nice. Yeah, I mean, I immediately feel that. Like like I was telling you guys, it, it second day, I just felt like you know it was it was work, and and I wasn't just working with Steve or John, but it's a whole family vibe, and it's been great. I mean, the cast happy hours and stuff, and even John Malkovich, he's like. He he said this one one thing, and uh, I'm going to try to quote him. He says, uh, "I'm only saying this maybe because I'm old, but this doesn't happen very often." So, oh, that's nice. Mm. I'm very grateful to be here as the lowest man on the totem pole. Uh, I feel you know at least somewhere in the middle. So you guys, <laughs> you guys are awesome, and I think that reflects in in, in the in, in the shows you guys make. It has so much comedy and so much heart at the same time because at the end of the day, it's a good group of people. And we do truly kind of care and uh, about each other. And what Greg was saying about putting trust in his actors and stuff, absolutely feel that day one. So it, it's been great. And uh, I'm sure I'm speaking for myself and behalf of our cast and crew and the audience. Can't wait to make more and have some fun. Great job with the podcast, man. And, and thanks, guys. Uh, seems like we've only been working together not so long, but already feel like family. Thank you. Well, that's saying a little too much, Jimmy, but... We- <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. but um- <laughs> don't, don't delete my number off your phone, please. <laughs> no. no, that's great. I mean, if, it, if, it, if it wasn't for this fucking pandemic, we would be all probably living together at this point. <laughs> at Steve's house, right? Yeah. Cool. Yes. Yeah, cool. come on over, guys. Can't wait. Can't wait. Steve will be on vacation. That'll be Reginald. Reginald will answer the, the door for you. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to all getting together in person and celebrating it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, we'll do some Zoom happy hours and such. Well, yes, count me in. That sounds good. See you guys soon. Okay, see ya. This has been Inside Joke Space Force. I'm your host, Jimmy O. Yang. Join us again for even more Space Force right here on the podcast.